Welcome to Boundaries of Expression and the second episode in our series on the right to protest. I'm Jo Glanville. Today, we're looking at women taking to the streets to protect their rights, from Iran to Poland. Over the past two years, there has been an alarming retreat from the defence of women's reproductive rights. Poland introduced a near-total ban on abortion in 2020. In the US, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer, ending the constitutional right to abortion after nearly 50 years. But this sea change has triggered remarkable protest movements. In Poland, the Polish women's strike was at the vanguard. Nationwide, hundreds of thousands came out to defend their rights in the largest protest since the fall of communism. In the US, there were also demonstrations across the country in response to the loss of this fundamental right. The issue was central to the Democrats' campaign in the midterms in November and key to its unexpected success, winning control of the Senate. In Iran, the death of Masa Amini in September sparked unprecedented demonstrations across the Islamic Republic after she was arrested by the morality police for not following the obligatory dress code. Woman, life, freedom is the slogan of the protest movement. But this uprising has also become a call for wider radical change as the government cracks down on the demonstrations. Our reporter Nicola Kelly went to meet filmmaker and journalist Mazia Bahari, whose website IranWire covers events in the country and was the first to break the story about Masa Amini. It's a lovely bright afternoon and I'm just about to meet Mazia Bahari, a courageous and pioneering journalist who set up a digital news site called Iran Wire in 2014, working with an extensive network of on-the-ground reporters and citizen journalists across the country. In September, one of Iran Wire's reporters saw an Instagram post about a 22-year-old young woman who'd been badly beaten by the regime's morality police for purportedly violating a strict dress code that mandates women to wear the hijab. She began digging and going to the hospital to speak to the woman's brother. She made her way in and found him, and he asked the journalist to tell the world his sister's name, Masa Amini. Shortly afterwards, Masa very sadly died and her death has sparked an outcry against the Iranian regime, with hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets across Iran to call for change. The UN says that more than 14,000 people have been arrested and detained, but still, swathes of people in Iran and around the world continue to take to the streets. And the police have responded with brute force killing nearly 350 people to date, including use of the death penalty, as well as waging aggressive disinformation campaigns online. Maziar and his team of reporters want to ensure that, amid all this noise, it's the protesters' voices that get heard. Masa Amini's beating, arrest and death really touched Iranians all around the country. Many older Iranians and 
Iranian men, they sympathize with her because Mahsa could be their sister, their daughter, their niece, their cousin. And for many Iranian women, Mahsa, they really identified with Mahsa Amini. They could be Mahsa Amini. They can be arrested at any given time by the morality police or other parts of the security forces in Iran. They can be beaten up. They can be jailed. They can be killed by this morality police. And we've seen that many young Iranian women have been killed by the by different parts of the Iranian security forces, whether it's the police, the revolutionary guards, the army, the special unit uh, since uh, September 16th, because they just wanted to protest and they just wanted to express their anger against the this government. Massa was beaten and later died because of what she was wearing. And the morality police have been sort of cracking down on women in particular over dress code, and in particular the, the hijab. Why do you think the dress code is so central to their authority? And have you seen the morality police becoming stricter in terms of the control over women's dress code, but also their, their bodies recently? So uh, the Iranian government really wants to impose the hijab because it's an instrument of oppression. So uh, there are different instruments of oppression in Iran, you know, at school, at uh, work, in the society. But for women especially, and this government is really an anti-women uh, government, hijab is the main way to oppress uh, women. It's the main way for its cronies, the government cronies, to show that women have been defeated, and that's why they're observing the hijab. Because it's not only Iranian, Muslim Iranian women who are supposed to wear the hijab in Iran, but Iranians from other religions, Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, they have to wear the hijab as well. And not only that, even foreigners who come to Iran, they have to observe the hijab. So that is an instrument of oppression for the Iranian government. When Mahsa Amini died because of that small piece of cloth and showing a little bit of hair, hundreds of thousands of people have been coming to the streets fighting against the imposed hijab, imposed piece of cloth, because they don't want to be oppressed. So the government knows that they cannot uh, rule through hijab anymore. And as a result, we can see that on the streets of Iran, Morality police is almost gone, but they have not been prepared for such a revolt inside the country by hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people in all uh, different provinces, all 31 provinces of Iran. People have been revolting against the government. So the government is not uh, prepared for it. And as a result, they cannot really dedicate their forces to, imposed, to imposing hijab anymore. They are beating up protesters. They're trying to arrest uh, civil society activists. They're trying to arrest as many journalists as possible right now. As, uh, Today, we can say that there are almost 60 professional journalists in prison and maybe more than 200 citizen journalists, people who've been just in, in prison because of sharing a uh, Twitter uh, post or putting, a, putting up a, 
an Instagram uh, story they're in prison. Uh, filmmakers have been banned from leaving the country. Uh, filmmakers have been um, jailed. So as a result, the government really cannot dedicate its forces to imposing the hijab. You mentioned prison. Um, I know you were detained yourself. Perhaps you can describe for people who don't know, what are the conditions like in prison in, in Evin and, and, and many of the others across the country. What might some of these protesters face once they've been detained? Well, I was arrested as a journalist for a foreign magazine. I was working for Newsweek at that time as a journalist and Channel 4 News as a filmmaker. So I was a high profile uh, you know, prisoner. I was a celebrity prisoner in a sense that, you know, there was an international campaign for me. My wife uh, is a British citizen. Hillary Clinton talked about me. So what I went through, which was horrible, and what I went through during 107 days in solitary confinement, 118 days in prison, it's nothing compared to what many unknown prisoners are going through because the regime wanted me to confess to being a spy, and at least they wanted to protect my face. So when I was beaten in the uh, interrogation room, I was beaten in my head, on my shoulder, on my legs, and they never touched my face. So at least I had my face. But with many of the unknown protesters, many unknown prisoners, the government uh, officials have no mercy. And also, I was in Evin prison, which is a notorious prison. It's a very scary prison because uh, thousands of people have been executed in Evin. But Evin is, uh, is an institution. It's an organized prison. There is a hierarchy that's respected. But in many other prisoners across Iran, there is no hierarchy. There is no, there's chaos. And we are hearing that the prisoners, hundreds of prisoners, are kept in a in cells or in rooms where it's it's only for twenty people. There are like hundred people in a room. That's for and we are, there are horrible stories. Uh, when uh, there was a fire in Evin Prison uh, around the end of September, we heard that they transferred hundreds of prisoners from Evin to another prison, and there was no space for them to go to the toilets. So people have to urinate over each other. People had to take turns in order to sit down or sleep. The conditions is just unimaginable. It's just horrid, horrid conditions. And I, as someone who suffered a lot in 2009 as a prisoner, I know for a fact that what I went through is nothing compared to what thousands of young Iranians are going through. And the average age of protesters in Iran and prisoners in Iran is between 16 to 22. This is a generation that has no memory of the revolution, no memory of eight years of war with Iraq in the 1980s, between 1980 to 1988, and they cannot identify with the ideals of their parents. They have no respect for this government, even though they have been educated by this government. 
And this is a generation that the government itself calls them whores, calls them drunkards, calls them uh, hooligans, and they have no respect for the government. And as a result, uh, unfortunately, I think they are going to suffer in the hands of the regime for the foreseeable future until the regime is gone. And that's why many of them, they don't see any possibility of reform in the country and they want to change the regime. Where do you see this going? Where do you see this protest movement going, not only in Iran, but also internationally? Do you think it's too late for the regime to contain the, the number of people, the, the swell of anger and, and outrage about what's happened to Massa? Or do you think that they, that they will crack down to such an extent that people won't want to take to the streets? It's difficult to know what will happen in the future because what has happened so far has surprised everyone, including people on the street. When the protest started on September 16, 2022, no one expected to talk about it right now. And we know for a fact that it's not going to end in the next one month or so, at least. Right now, every gathering in Iran has been banned, except for the government gathering. So uh, even football matches in Iran, in the stadiums, there are no spectators. There are no concerts because they know for a fact that as soon as a group of people get together in Iran, it becomes a protest. So we really don't know what is going on and what is going to happen uh, at the end of this protest. But we know for a fact that the situation is not tenable. So maybe the regime becomes more militarized and they will become another run-of-the-mill uh, Middle Eastern uh, dictatorship like Hafez Assad or Bashar Assad's Syria or Muammar Gaddafi's Libya. Uh, there will be less space, even less space for civil society to be active. But at the same time, like any other dictatorship, they are going to, the Islamic, the Islamic Republic is going to dedicate all its resources to protecting itself and to put the, all its resources into military. And what happens for all these dictatorships is that they're going to run out of resources. And at, the, and at the end of the process, they're going to implode. When you look at countries like Poland, for example, in Poland in 1981, they imposed the military rule. And then what happened in eight years time, it imploded. I don't think it's going to take eight years in Iran for the government to implode, but I think that is the most likely scenario. But I can be wrong, and I think anyone who tells you with certainty that what's going, they know what is going to happen in Iran is bullshitting you. Two years before the protests in Iran, the restriction on abortion rights in Poland triggered mass demonstrations across the country. Marta Lempert is founder of Polish Women's Strike, which led the resistance. She's also one of the leaders. Mm -hmm. 
When did you first turn to protest as a tool for change, a tool for political and social change? I think that the crucial moment was 2016 when we organized the first uh, protest against abortion ban on October 3rd, uh, 2016. It was also called Black Protest, Black Monday, because I'm the person who called for the national strike, for the national protest to be held on the on 3rd of October. It was a total ban on abortion, the bill then. So also with jail for miscarriage and all, no exceptions, even if there was a threat to women's, uh, women's health or life. And it was actually my partner who came up with the idea of doing things differently. So not protesting on the weekends, not protesting on just in big cities and making it quite disturbing in spite of whatever else we were doing before. The things that we did, I think there was kind of desperate thing. So the ban on abortion that was on the table wasn't just a change, the systematic change, like we, we had with uh, the Constitutional Court, with courts, with rule of law, judicial independence, but it was something that was very personal. So that was, I think, the reason for that we felt that this is the only thing, it's not one of the many things, it's the only thing that we can actually do, is to protest against that. And the thing that also changed then, it was that it was the first time that people became less of a protest attendees than than they became leaders and organizers uh, because it was in the beginning there was this expectation that the information will be given where to protest where to go instead of that we put on a facebook event we put ask basically a poll to ask people where they want to protest they started naming the cities thinking that they will be given information where to go instead of that they were asked to join the organizers group, the local leaders group that we started also on Facebook. And what was the response in 2016? The ban was dropped. Three days after the protest, the ban was dropped. The government voted no. And then the whole thing started that made us a massive movement, I would say, because it was the first time when this right-wing government was forced to do anything that they didn't want to do. They were absolutely surprised and furious because... I think the thing that scared them the most was the fact that people were protesting everywhere. People were protesting in smaller, middle-sized cities. So people were protested, protesting in regions and places where the government has a huge majority during the elections. So they had to kind of say goodbye to this feeling that there are territories, there are places in Poland when they have it covered, nobody will uh, oppose them. They don't have to worry about those places. And it turned out that they don't know a thing. It can happen anywhere and people can protest against them everywhere in Poland. So that that was this thing that I think changed the government's attitude. But also what came after that was this pure hatred campaign from the government officials, from the right-wing parties, but especially from the Catholic Church. They just couldn't kind of swallow it, the, the failure on their side. So especially in small cities, there was a whole campaign of harassment by the priests who would call the protest organizers by their names, you know, in churches during the mass, who would harass children of the protest organizers in school, telling them that their mothers are murderers and so on. So it was a local harassment on a scale that most of those persons, or maybe none of the persons who were organizing the protests, has ever experienced. And that was the moment when, because it was the moment when it was everything was deciding, people could say, okay, we won. We can go back home and, you know, we don't have to engage into anything. 
And that was the moment when those women, because of course it was 90% women, said, okay, so you're doing this to me, you're doing this to my family, you're calling me names, you're harassing my children, I'm done with you. And we organized next protest three weeks after the first one. It was almost also 100 cities, but it was a massive declaration of independence, I would say. And that was the start of that. We were not just a protest, one time protest, we became a movement at that moment. So four years later, 2020, a near total ban on abortion is introduced and there are extraordinary protests across Poland. Yes, it was 600 cities that time. So we grew from 150 cities. And of course, we've had like 5,000 5, actions in those four years to 600 cities and 100 days of protests ongoing. Every day there were protests somewhere. And why do you think this particular issue, above all the other challenges to human rights in Poland and the rule of law, why do you think this particular issue galvanize the Polish people? I think it was because uh, we know actually that it it was um, in big scale, it was also an anti-government protest. So it kind of took all together. Uh, it was about abortion. Of course, it was about reproductive rights, about, about human rights, about women's rights. But it was also about the government. It was also about judiciary, about the rule of law and whatever is happening to the country. It was very strong anti-government protest. And what do you think the impact of the protests have been on Polish society and on the government? The government was brought down by 10 points and they never recovered. So when it started, they were over 40% support. They went far below that and never recovered. So they're like 10% down. The other thing is that really important major thing happened. Of course, ban on abortion doesn't mean no abortions. It means that abortion is not that easily accessible. Uh, during the protest, the number to abortion without borders, the, the biggest uh, collective that provides abortion services in Poland, was everywhere. It was in the media. It was actually politicians of opposition going to the national media and trolling on live uh, shows showing this number, 22, 29, 22, 597. And it's a number that everybody knows in Poland now, which means that the barrier that usually is there when there are collectives providing services to people outside of the system, the problem always is that people might not know about that service, how to get it. So we overcome this. This is the third most known number in Poland after the police and fire brigade. The third most known number is abortion without borders. So this is the win. That people, that we actually, apart from everything else, we have this whole system that is really professional and really accessible of abortions being provided. I think it's a lesson also for the U.S. Because unless all the organizations won't join each other and won't connect and just provide one number, one website, one field, one information, nothing will work. Lastly, one of the things is that European Parliament decided that abortion is a human right. There was a resolution on that. And this is what we did that. It's not like European politicians woke up one day and said, yeah, let's let's say that abortion is a human right. It's Polish people on the streets who did that. And the biggest opposition party in Poland, that is conservative, of course, because Polish political scene is 90% conservative. In March 2021, they dis- declared that they are not longer for the ban on abortion. They are for legal abortion, which means that we are scarier than the church that I'm scarier than the bishops, that people on the streets are scarier. So the conservatives for the first time chose people over the church 
in the whole history of Polish parliamentarians on that matter, on all, any matters on human rights, because they would always choose the church. That's an extraordinary achievement. Yes, and now Donald Tusk, who's the leader of the, 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 the major opposition party of Civic Platform, said that no one will be allowed to run, no one will be allowed to be a candidate if they are not for legal abortion. They won't be even like they won't be on the elections list. And when we, I was presenting the bill to legalize abortion, because we collected two hundred thousand signatures, and I was presenting a civic bill in the parliament in June this year, it was the first time that the opposition did not vote no. So that's a remarkable cultural shift. Yes, in Poland, uh, I, I know because I, but the reason is very simple: seventy percent of people in Poland support legal abortion. We started at thirty-seven percent, and. With the opposition electorate, for civic platform, the Conservative Party, the biggest party, it's 97%. For the other party, it's 94 although the, the party is led by Christian fundamentalists who's for the ban on abortion. And 94% of his electorate actually wants legal abortion. They have to look at the numbers. They have to adjust to the numbers. And you faced significant harassment and threats and You've got a new court case against you as well with a possible eight-year sentence. How do you cope with that level of intimidation? Depends on what is happening exactly, when it's happening and who's doing that. I am, I'm on over 100 cases. As, uh, most of that are misdemeanor cases, so it's not like the very serious. Of course, it's not nothing nice to go to court all the time, but... Some of the cases are kind of on purpose. I say things that everybody knows is true. Then I get a court case uh, for that. And then in court, we prove that this is true, what I said. And the, the goal is reached because the media are talking about it. And we have the court saying, yes, this and this person is a neo-Nazi. Yes, this, this is a fundamentalist group. But some of the cases, yes, are criminal cases for organizing protests, for participating in the protests and so on and so on. I have whole legal teams. We have, uh, this is also like one of the positive outcomes. We are the best, we are the big, biggest NGO in the world, I think, Poland, because we don't have the government that would provide any services to anyone. So we have to organize everything ourselves. So we also have this legal assistance, um, collective and collectives. So what, what we saw in the last years is legal professionals that people would usually perceive as, you know, this kind of a class that it's above everyone else and only cares about the money, working pro bono thousands and thousands of hours for free to release activists, to help activists in court. So this is my situation also. We also have something that is called psychoemergency, which is a mental health program for people with burnout, people with PTSD. So, and I also use that uh, help. I have a psychotherapist because it's not a, just a helpline, it's a psychotherapy program. So it's a win for us. And it's, it's the best thing because this is not a normal job. This, there are things that come with it that shouldn't come with any job, like getting death threats and so on and so on. I have to move apartments sometimes. I, I cannot, sometimes I cannot stay at home. And, you know, these are, there are things happening to me and my family that shouldn't happen. And we have to have security here and there. And I, I have some limitations also for security reasons about moving around. And so, yeah, there are things that are not normal and it, it shouldn't be normalizing them. It's not a way to go. It's actually not good. It's not helping. So, so we have, I would say that we have a system in place. Looking at the incredible success of your campaign and that you've created not just a, a movement, 
But as you've just been describing, an extraordinary network of support, of legal support, of, of psychological support. Do you think that you could be a model, what you've done in Poland? Could that be a model for other protest movements around the world? I think it already is. The questions we are asked most often about is about uh, mobilizing people outside of big cities that we have trained back and forth and we did it and it's just happening in Poland and it became a thing. The questions that we get is the burnout question. So how to do it when there are those breaks that no history books, no movies show, like there is nothing happening or there are no wins and there are, even the failures are something happening. So when there's this pending time when nothing happens and yeah, I think that's mostly that, like the sustainability and how to deal with the, how to organize people, how to help people organize. What do you think Iranian activists can learn from Poland? Obviously, it's a country with a very different history. I don't think, yeah, I think we should learn from them because the courage is the thing. You both have enormous courage. I mean, Poland and Iran. Yeah, this is totally different situation. So we are harassed, but we are harassed in courts. We are detained, but it's it you know it doesn't end up in people being killed, and we are beaten up, but it doesn't end in hospitals usually. So we just have a couple of cases. I don't want to diminish what's happening in Poland because we have six thousand people being harassed in courts and police and so on, and we had people who were beaten up and we were gassed and and I have a spine injury. I couldn't walk for a month and a half after the police intervention. But it's still uncomparable, I would say. I think that I, I can say what we have in common. What we have in common is the conviction that freedom comes with the secular state and the secular state comes with freedom. Usually, of course, we have arguments against that, especially as I'm from Poland and communist countries were secular countries and it didn't give anyone any freedom. But still, when we look at that, what's happening now in the world, and fighting Poland is about Poland becoming a secular country, and we we were not a we're not a faith like we're not religious country, but we're a non secular country. When some religion has actually influence on on the state of of law, the the law that shouldn't even be connected to religion in any way, and we still have that. We still have the church influencing the laws. So I think this is the thing that if and and this is to all religions, all religions. At some point, if they get stronger, they will try to use the political force, the state force, to impose their own rules on the people. So if we want to have human rights, we cannot have religion anywhere near the state because it's it's the natural enemy of every religion, is the objective system of human rights. You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville and Nicola Kelly. Recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. Listen out for our next podcast in the series on monarchy and the right to protest. If you'd like to find out more about Article 19's work defending freedom of expression, please visit article19.org and read the new report on the right to protest. Protest.